Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is 2018. We are finished our summer series. We are diving right into the science of, I wouldn't call it the future, I'd call it the present. 2018 has become the present. My name is Chris, and this week I am going to talk about a very recent 2018 event, which is the awarding of the Australian of the Year to a quantum physicist, something that I am very excited about. And I'm glad to see that the rest of the community seems to be fairly excited about a physicist uh, hitting the big leagues in that sense. So, yeah, I'm going to be talking about uh, yeah Michelle Simmons, our Australian of the Year, uh, what she's done and what she has to say about science in Australia, which is quite interesting. Claire, what have you got for us today? Well, Chris, I don't know if you knew this, uh, probably being the astronomical nerd you are, there was a blue blood supermoon the other other day. There was a lot of hype, certainly. (laughs) There was a lot of hype. There there was a full moon and some stuff happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw that. Yeah, it was really good. There's some debate about the blue moon aspect of it being in Daylight Savings apparently ruined the blue moon for Victoria. But anyway... Well, whatever it is, it got me talking to a couple of my girlfriends about how their periods are affected by the full moon. This is all, this isn't science yet, but it got me thinking, is there any science that backs up the fact that women get their periods on a full moon? So that's what I'm going to be looking at, the blood moon. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Claire. Stu, what have you got today? Uh, Well, I've got some pretty up-to-date news uh, from scientists in China who have successfully managed to clone a primate, which uh, has has been done before, but I'll go into a little bit of detail about why this is a more impressive achievement than what they had done previously in the late 90s, actually. But uh, yes, so uh, cloned monkeys, stay tuned for that barrel of monkey clones. Great. Well, on with the show. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I am very excited about the news that quantum physicist Michelle Simmons was named Australian of the Year. In Woohoo! Uh, is, this, is this the first time a physicist has been named Australian of the Year? Uh, that I'm aware of, except that also coincidentally, Senior Australian of the Year this year was biophysicist Graham Farquhar. So it was a double... Physicist bill. Double physics whammy for yeah, the Australian exactly. of the year. Australians um, of the year. We might talk about uh, Graham Farquhar's work uh, on another show, um, but I want to talk about, yeah, Australian of the Year, Michelle Simmons, uh, and what she has done and what she has to say. Uh, she is from the UK originally, but she has, yeah, some interesting things to say about Australian science. But first, we should look at the actual science. Let's dive into some quantum physics, shall we? Okay, so 
Michelle Simmons and her team work at the University of New South Wales, which is leading to a building a quantum computer. Now, there's a lot of excitement worldwide about uh, quantum. Oh, everyone's excited about quantum computers. They are. They, they're seen as the next big leap in computing. And now, one way of thinking about how they work that I like to think of is to imagine, you know, you've heard of Schrodinger's cat, the cat that's in two different states at once. Well, imagine the cat has a, has a calculator. And so just like the cat can be in two different states, the calculator can be in two or more different states, doing two or more different calculations at the same time. So it's kind of a form ah. of parallel processing, things you can't do on a normal computer. Of course, it's a bit difficult to program something like that. So there's a lot of theoretical work being done on how these things would actually work. Uh, but there actually are some websites online where you can have a go at it yourself, just incidentally, if you're interested. Um, I would Google IBM Quantum Experience. They have like cloud quantum computing you can experiment with. What, what do you mean experiment with cloud quantum computing? I don't know. I haven't had much of a play with it. You, they, they've got this weird programming language. It's like a musical score that, they, that you have to set things up in. There's it's no cats and calculators? No cats and calculators. That would be easier, I think. Um, quantum Computers are also quite difficult to build, and there are many groups around the world who are racing to achieve a fully working quantum computer using different technologies. Uh, you might have heard people trying to use light, like photonics, to do it. Um, but the team at uh, University of New South Wales are using silicon, which has the advantage of already being the basis for regular computers. So there's a whole manufacturing industry for silicon, and yeah, they are working on that. One of their biggest achievements came in 2012 when they built a transistor out of a single atom. Wow. Now, um, why is this a big deal? Well, you know what a transistor is, don't you? Yeah, I mean, of course I know what a transistor is. <clears throat> just was... give me a refresher. Just okay. Like, yeah. A transistor can, uh, does a few different things. So it's basically, for the purposes of building a computer, it's essentially a type of switch. And so what happens is you can control whether a current is flowing through it or not by applying a voltage to it. Okay, so you can switch it on and off. Now, this is normally done by having a bit of silicon and then you add impurities to it, um, which is called doping the silicon with um, extra extra electrons or sometimes fewer electrons. Um, and then it can then conduct the current by having this, this doped material. In this case, they doped it with a single atom of phosphorus. So they had, well, the actual bit of the transistor had four atoms in it and they replaced one of the atoms with an atom of phosphorus, a silicon atom with an atom of phosphorus. And phosphorus has one extra electron in its outer shell than silicon does. And so there's an extra um, electron to to carry the the current, but it only you can tr- control whether it conducts current or not by applying a voltage. And so, essentially, what you do is you change if the voltage matches the energy levels of the phosphorus atom. You can control whether it's conducting the current or not. So, essentially, you can turn this transistor on and off by applying the right voltage that matches the energy levels of the phosphorus atom. So this is like this is like solid state electronics. That yeah. was a huge revolution when they figured, oh, you don't have to have gaseous valves and all these things to have resistance. Yeah, we can do it by having just these lumps of silicon in there. But this is so much smaller than anything that's come before. Yeah, that it means the size of the machines you can build with it is even smaller. Yeah. Well, okay. So apart from the fact we're already dealing with quantum effects, which is the um, the the pathway to a quantum computer, it is yeah the very small. And small as you can get, essentially, for uh, a transistor, which is like an, a fundamental 
component of a computer. Now, say, I don't know whether you've heard of Moore's Law, which is the observation that uh, computing power has historically been increasing exponentially. And this is because of miniaturization. We're making um, the the parts smaller and smaller. So computers being able to can pack more and more components onto a single chip. And this has been happening yeah, exponentially over the life of computers. And it was predicted that it would reach its kind of its end point when you got down to components being the size of a single atom. And this was expected to happen about 2020. Uh, now, Michelle Simmons' team achieved this in 2012, sorry, 2012, so they were a few years early. Uh, it's not at the commercial stage yet, but basically we're reaching the limits of Moore's Law already. So it's a big thing in computing circles. Um, yeah, so that's like, it's quite a big, um, it is quite a big achievement. Like I said, it's a bit of a way off being done commercially. And this is, I guess, one of the things that um, she's observed about Australian science. So essentially, she came to Australia from the UK because she liked the way that science worked in Australia. So she you know, did her original study in the UK, but um, Britain was very hierarchical um, and also very focused on kind of a lot of the, the basic research and you know, people kind of looking at all the reasons why things wouldn't work in practice. There was a lot of obstacles to doing stuff. US, she said, is very highly competitive. Um, you have to really fight for your funds and you have to rely on senior mentors, mentors to, to get those funds. So she came to Australia where basically there was a lot more freedom to work on what you want and it's easier to collaborate with different groups around the country. But the challenge is that Australia has its own kind of hang-ups. You know, there's this whole idea of uh, the lucky country and not actually focusing on innovation that much. And she, you know, as a lot of people have said, saying we need to get beyond that. We need to challenge our students, our science students, to actually, uh, with harder science, to make them achieve more. And we need to um, collaborate more between uh, industry and academia because there's a lot of distrust between those two areas, which is something you need to get beyond if you want to, say, you know, build quantum computers. But, you know, she's working on breaking down those barriers. And, yeah, she's a good example to, for science, education, science achievement in this country. And it is very exciting just on its own that people, um, uh, everyone seems pretty stoked with the idea of a physicist as Australian of the Year. So, you know, maybe and we do. And a female physicist. And the, yeah, let's, let's, let's be honest. A female physicist let's is also honest, good to have there. Let's be honest, there aren't that many female physicists out there. There are, there are a lot. But yeah, there, there should be more. Well, yes. there aren't that many. Yeah. Should be 50-50, let's be honest. There should, yeah. should be 50. Yeah, yeah it's, and it's less than 15%. It is. It is like, it's not great, but I don't want to, you know, diminish those that are out there. I'm just saying, yeah, there should be more. Clearly, there should be more. Yeah, and it shows, yeah, we appreciate her hard work and um, the cleverness of Australian physicists. Okay, so there was a super blue blood moon recently. Uh, it was the first time in 35 years that we've had a total lunar eclipse. Also, at the same time, a blue moon. So um, the second full moon in a calendar month and also the super moon, meaning it was closer to Earth than it normally is, but not that close, right? Well, not. I don't think it's visibly bigger. A lot, I mean, it did look spectacular. I went out it that did night look and amazing. for once... In a long time. In a blue moon? It was, well, for once in a blue moon, the skies <laughs> were clear in Melbourne and you could see it quite quite well. Anyway, all this talk of blood moons had a few of my friends observing to me that firstly, their periods synced up with the full moon and secondly, that this super blood moon 
um, provided super amounts of blood for them. So on the surface of things, the idea of this synchronicity between the moon and um, the female menstruation cycles, it seems to be... Okay, so the like new moon to new moon has a cycle of 29.5 days and in general the female menstrual cycle is about 29.5 days, period to period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people think, oh, okay, there must be this must be the reason for why the period is that length. It must be somehow connected to the Why they synced up somehow. Why they synced up. There's got to be some sort of, you know – otherworldly magical thing happening here um it's 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 quite odd though because among mammals humans have a very specific cycle yeah which other animals don't Don't have have, which is quite odd for us to have this completely different way of doing it than you know women women can get pregnant pretty much any time of year yeah whereas other animals very very limited yeah very limited to when they can actually have you know, get get uh, get pregnant. I had a lot of questions as well. Like, if the moon is somehow intrinsically linked to fertility, and you know the synchronicity of female menstrual cycle, then why aren't all the other animals also synced to the moon? Like, why is it why is it just humans? Like, what is the evolutionary advantage to if, that? If if there even if there is even one, is one. Like, or is it just a fluke? Or is it just a fluke? Or well, like, know, it's what kind of, is actually going on? It's kind of a fluke that the moon perfectly blocks out the sun, and it's kind of a fluke that the earth perfectly blocks out the sun and has a lunar eclipse as well. So it's like there's some coincidences there going some on. There some coincidences going on. So I thought I'd have a look at the science. Has anyone actually looked into this? And has anyone actually looked into this? Well, people have. I mean, first of all, I should say there's, there is an assumption that a woman's cycle is the same as the moon. There's 29.5 days of the moon cycle, 29.5 days of, um, of the female cycle. However, it's only partly true. Obviously, menstrual cycles aren't the same for every woman and menstrual flow happens every 21 to 35 days. Actually, menstrual cycles tend to shorten and become more regular as a woman ages. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is what is normal and standard for a menstrual cycle is actually um, quite a broad range. Like yeah. 21 to 35 days is not 29.5 days exactly. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's nearly sort of – it's almost double at the longer extreme than it is at the at shorter, the shorter extreme. extreme. Yeah, so this assumption that, oh, my gosh, there's this somewhat intrinsic link between the moon, which is always on time – and the female menstrual cycle is not necessarily true. It's only true yeah. for some women in the population. Yeah. And, the, you know, the, the moon doesn't change its cycle. Exactly. It's been, it's been doing exactly. the same thing. Anyway, with that assumption aside, what about the women who do have 29.5-day cycles? And this is about 28% of women. Are they more likely to have their period on a full moon, as the stories I've heard would suggest? Which brings us to a paper uh, back in 1987 from a scientist named Winifred Cutler, um, and she published a paper called Lunar Influences on the Reproductive Cycle in Women. Um, She found female uni students who lived in dorms, and she got one um, woman per dorm, and if they had a cycle that was 29.5 days, plus or minus one day, then she put them in the study. There was 229 women who participated 
And from this, she found that these women were statistically more likely to have their period during the full moon, which is interesting. It is interesting. (laughs) Another research paper from 1980 showed this as well with 70% of women who have that 29.5-day cycle getting their period within 7.5 days of the full moon. So, Is that three days either side or is that – No, that's – After Um, after, the full moon. Yeah. Okay. After the full moon. So, I mean, they're not huge numbers that they're dealing with. 230 women is not, you know, the largest number of women that you could have in a trial. Anyway, these are older studies and um, they do have, yeah, like I said, these smaller data sets. What I sort of find interesting is with the types of apps that are available now, you've got um, apps that track women's cycles. There's one called Natural Cycles, mm-hmm. which is was developed by a physicist who came up with an algorithm um, to, you know, you input your basal body temperature and when you get your period and it gives you quite accurate, equivalent to the pill, if you do it correctly, information about, you know, when you can safely have sex and when you can't as a contraceptive method. Those data sets would be really which useful. Is, which would be really useful yeah. if we wanted to actually go back and have a look as to, you know, whether like it was the norm for women with a 29.5-day cycle with a large data set. I mean, I guess the question I haven't even tried to answer here is, you know, if this is the case and women are more likely to have their periods, periods during a full moon, why? Why would that even happen. And um, there's a lot of conjecture about this. There's a lot of like dodgy um, dodgy websites dedicated to this. Oh, dodgy websites <laughs> on the internet. Who would guess? Especially referring to Babylonian texts. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. In the scientific journals, um, there's a lot of speculation around the hormone melatonin, um, which is the hormone that has a function in sleep and wakefulness. And it's part... It, it has quite a big part to play in the onset of menstruation. Um, it's been shown to change um, significantly during the female cycle. So there's some speculation around the moon being brighter, initiating a hormonal response and then menstruation. And that, But I don't know. Like that's, that doesn't seem to be realistic given you've got so much artificial light in our lives now. Yeah, you would think if there was something tied to the light, then surely yeah. this would have changed since, you know, the invention of the candle, let alone electric light and television yeah. and, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It, it should it should surely come up in the synchronicity of fertility as well, so that if, if there was some sort of rhythmic cycle, mm. you'd get more yeah. babies being born at certain times. That's of true. The year, yeah, or at certain times of months, mm-hmm. but that doesn't seem to be the case. No, so no, it, it may just be that that's that's the evidence right there. <laughs> totally. Um, and I mean, the most bizarre theory, if you'll indulge me, um, would have to be the idea that human females, being seventy percent water, are like small oceans, and um, and the the gravitational. Uh, pull of the moon is somehow bringing on um, some sort of menstruation. But the gravity of the moon doesn't change just because you can see it. <laughs> it's there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. also, and also, the the 
distance between two objects has a huge influence on the gravitational attraction totally, between exactly. them. So you're going to be more attracted to the ground and the cars and the buildings yeah, around yeah, you than the moon. Yeah, or a fly really that lands on your yeah. on your arm. Yeah, it's and you know we're a very ordered mass of cells. We're not like an ocean. No, um, as pretty as that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I don't want to get too too down on the effect of moon on life on this planet. Of course, you know, uh, moon, the moon is an amazing celestial body. It dictates the tides and behavior of a lot of animals. Uh, fiddler crabs become uh, more active during a full moon. Gerbils. <laughs> Gerbils. <laughs> yes. Become less active during a full moon. Because they are terrified of predators and are more likely to be eaten by owls. I mean, you know, it is an incredible thing, and I'm really looking forward to what the future research finds and with any potential links with female cycles. But even more so, I think we should really celebrate the moon a little bit more than once in a blue moon. Blue moon, you saw me standing alone. Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own Blue moon You knew just what I was there for You heard me saying a prayer for Someone I really could care for And then there suddenly appeared So almost... 20 years ago in 1999, researchers in the United States first cloned a rhesus monkey using a method called embryo splitting. So this method involves taking an embryo at the eight cell stage and dividing it into two. Yeah, very, very early. So it's like single fertilized egg, two cells, four cells, eight cells. Mm -hmm. When it gets to eight cells, they chop it into two. Right. And create two separate and practically identical embryos from a single fertilization of an egg. Yeah, like identical twins. That's exactly right. So this happens naturally in a number of species where you get identical twins, including humans. And that's because it's basically a natural fertilization process. So to call it cloning is sort of a bit of a stretch, really. Yeah, we'd have to call twins cloning. Well, yeah. Um, and there's <laughs> Natural also- cloning. There's also no way to accurately predict the genotype of offspring that are produced in this way. So, mm. you know, part of the reason for cloning is to get genetically identical individuals for various reasons. Um, so that was in 1999 that they, they cloned this rhesus monkey. Uh, they called it Tetra because Tetra means four and it started as four cells. <laughs> but three years before that, in 1996, Dolly the sheep was cloned and that was a big deal at the time yeah. using a completely different technique. So they got an egg cell and removed the nucleus of the egg cell and replaced it with the nucleus of an adult sheep cell. So they basically made a fake egg. Yeah. Which, I mean, that to me is cloning. That's proper cloning. Yeah. Yeah, it's proper cloning. That's what I would call it anyway. Um, well, it's one method anyway. I mean, we clone plants all the time and people don't think twice about yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. So this process yields an individual that's genetically identical to the source of the adult cell. And despite being used successfully on cattle and mice and goats and rabbits and a whole bunch of other species, not being successful when applied to primates. 
obviously primates includes monkeys and humans and the great apes as well. So there's actually a fair bit of interest in cloning the primates. But this year, uh, scientists in China have published a paper outlining their successful cloning of two long-tailed macaque monkeys using a modified version of the same technique that was used on Dolly. So the main change they've made, um, so they have actually been only successful using cell nuclei from monkey embryos, not adult monkeys. So it is slightly different. They have to get Mm. a monkey embryo, and then they can make multiple copies of that monkey embryo. Mm. Um, Whereas in Dolly the Sheep, it was an adult sheep that they used, and they could just grab any old cell from a sheep and... They did also have to figure out which modulators to switch on and off uh, in order for the cells to start developing as embryos. But but they claim now they've removed the technical barriers to primate cloning, which is kind of a bit of a holy grail of of cloning technologies to be able to clone primates. Um, But what they developed the method for was so they can clone lines of monkeys for animal testing of medical procedures and drugs. So 30 to 40,000 monkeys are imported every year into the US alone. That's just the US. Imported? Yeah, they don't have their own monkeys, so they go and collect them from the wild overseas and bring them into the US. They collect them from the wild? Yeah. Um, So as well as the drain on natural populations this causes, the captured monkeys are genetically variable. They're of varied ages. They've got a range of confounding factors that if you're going to do any experiments, it's Mm. going to actually confuse the results and make it actually harder to see what is going on when you're doing these testing. I mean, mouse lines and things. Yeah, mouse lines and things have been bred for years to be consistently certain kinds of mouse and certain genetic markers and things like that. But in monkeys, if you're just going out and rounding up monkeys in the jungle, you're just going to get whatever monkeys you can catch. So the researchers say they have not developed this technique to pave the way for human cloning in any way, and they don't want to get involved in the obvious ethical issues that that would uh, entail if you actually started trying to clone humans with the same methods. Uh, They're not really interested. But uh, despite the two cloned macaques who are identical, uh, called Zhong Zhong and Hua Hua, um, they are developing normally in Shanghai, where they're being looked after, um, being bottle-fed. But at this stage, the procedure has a very low success rate. They've only had two successful births out of a, nine, a 79 embryos implanted in their experiments. Wow. So it's very, very low uh, strike rate. Um, but they say that they... they are confident there'll be more cloned monkeys being born in the coming months. So they haven't stopped um, trying to clone monkeys, <laughs> uh, but they've only got two successes so far, but they're quite confident that they'll get more um, more successes coming out. And they will probably start looking at larger uh, primates at some point in the future uh, at this stage. But... You know, it's not it's not quite Planet of the Apes just yet.
That's all we have for another week on Lost in Science. Thank you very much for joining us for our first show back for 2018. Super moons, super physicists and um, super cloning, so to speak. And we really look forward to having you along for the science for another year. Lost in Science is recorded at the 3CR studios in Melbourne with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and is played across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Please get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you, especially in this new year. You can find us on Twitter, um, on Facebook at Lost in Science on 3CR, um, or you can drop us an email at lostinsci at gmail.com. Especially if you're a scientist out there, drop us a line and let us know what you are doing and what you're researching. But if we don't hear from you before then, we will catch you next week when we once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.